Environment from the sermon series Justice Matters, spoken by Pastor Kevin Swanson. Good to see you guys today. Thanks for coming out. Thank you, Pastor Peter, for that introduction. Uh, good to uh, just be reminded of this series that we're in and some of the implications of that. I feel like today's topic is a little bit unique because of these six topics that we're going to look at. We, we started last week with immigration. Um, every week we're focusing on one sector of, of society or humanity, if you will. Last week we talked about immigration. A lot of us don't have immigration issues. We should all care about it and we should work for justice in terms of immigration issues in our countries, but it doesn't directly impact us, a lot of us. And we're going to see that through the rest of this series, but today's different because today's topic is universal. It impacts every one of us and it puts a responsibility on every one of us. None of us can say, oh, he's not talking to me today, or the Word of God is not speaking to me today. It's a little bit different today, because today we're going to talk about justice in regards to this good earth, this planet that we call home, this place that we live, justice. The Bible happens to say a lot about this earth and what God thinks about this earth and some decisions that God has made about this earth. And I think one thing we're going to find is ultimately how we treat planet earth becomes a manifestation of how we obey the commandment to love our neighbor. Because the choices that we make here in Bergen County, New Jersey, actually have global implications. And they impact people that we may never meet in our lives. But they're still our neighbors. They're still our neighbors. And our mandate is to love our neighbors. If you grew up in a church tradition, anything like mine, you would never have heard this message in your church. I never did. You know, we heard gospel. We heard Jesus and coming to faith in Jesus. That's all wonderful stuff, but it's not the whole story. And this justice series hopefully is going to open our eyes to more and more aspects of the story of God's word and God's heart and what he has for us. Let's pray together and we will begin. God, it's a privilege for us to be gathered here together this morning. It's great to be among your people once again. It's great to worship together, and I look forward to sharing communion with my sisters and brothers at the end of this service. And now as we turn our attention to your word, God, we just want to say, open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to be willing, and literally invite you to do transformation in our lives. We have to change how we think sometimes so that we can change how we act. So we commit ourselves to you in this time in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, today what I would like to do is I'd like to start with God, and then I would like to end with us. But before that, a story for you. Uh, my wife and I lived for actually 10 years in the rural south of this country, and it's different down there. It's different. Um, we lived in a place called Roan Mountain, Tennessee. We were up in the mountains. It was uh, 100 acres of wooded land that was a retreat center that I was directing at the time. And it happened to be Halloween night, just like any other night uh, out in the woods. And so we, you know, turned the lights off and went to bed like we always did and slept soundly because it was a very peaceful place until about 1 or 2 in the morning when the phone rang. 
Now, I don't know about you, but phone calls at 1 or 2 in the morning are always bad in my book. It's either a wrong number and somebody interrupted my sleep, or it's bad news. And this one happened to be the latter. It was bad news. It was one of the other staff people who also lived on the grounds with us, uh, one of our hostesses, and she called me and she said, Kevin, my husband, Bill, has been out for an hour trying to put out a brush fire on the grounds, and he, and he can't do it by himself. He needs help. And my first thought was, why did you wait an hour to call me? Uh, but she didn't want to disturb me, but there was a fire out there burning on our ground. So she told me where it was. I threw some clothes on. I grabbed a shovel rake. I ran out to where Bill was already working at this fire. And it was, like I said, Halloween. It was fall. There were lots of leaves on the ground. So there were leaves that were burning, and there was some brush that was burning. And together for the next 20 or 30 minutes, we, we knocked that fire down, and we deprived it of fuel, and finally it was put out. And before we went back and, looked and went to bed, we looked to see, you know, where had this fire started? And we realized it had started on the edge of the road. There was a county road that ran through our property. And somebody had pulled over and lit some of the leaves on fire and then driven off. This was their Halloween night prank. And, and I sort of got that because I'd lived in the South long enough to know that people did things like that. That's, it's, it's, it's really a thing in the South. And so that was disconcerting, but the fire was out, no damage to buildings, nobody got hurt, you know, not a big deal, went back, went to bed. Well, the next morning, we woke up and found whether it was the same individual or somebody else, we'll never know, they had gone around the other side of the ridge from us where there was a very desolate road where nobody lived, and they had lit more fires at the base of the mountain. And you know, fire burns up. It goes uphill when it burns. And all night long, these fires burned unchecked. And in the morning when people woke up and they saw smoke in the sky and people started investigating and they, they had to bring in the, the, the state forestry people with their firefighting crews. They brought in a helicopter that picked up water out of lakes and dumped it on the fire. And for a full week, they fought that forest fire that had been lit that night. The good news is they caught the guy, found out who did it. They caught him. He went before a judge. He was sentenced to some jail time in the county jail. And we can look at that situation and we can say justice was done. They caught him. They caught the perpetrator. And he was punished for it. Now that kind of justice is called punitive justice. Where somebody has broken the law or something, they, they're brought to justice, they're punished for their crime. And we could just say, okay, case closed. But no. There was a whole mountainside that was blackened. The trees were gone. The brush was gone. The habitat for animals was gone on that mountainside. It had been violated. It was an injustice against God's earth. What about that? Well, that needed justice as well. Not punitive justice because the mountain didn't do anything wrong, but what we would call restorative justice restorative justice. What can be done to help correct a wrong, an injustice? And in this case, they could put up barriers to stop the hillsides from eroding when the rains came. They could plant seedlings that could take advantage of that soil and, and grow back up again. And, and, and justice could be brought to that injustice that had happened on that mountainside. Now, most of us, myself included, we don't think in terms of restorative justice. If somebody commits a crime, we want to see them brought to justice, unless it's us. Then we want to get away with it. But if somebody does that, we want that punitive justice to happen. But what about restorative justice? It's really not on our radar screen. We may not even believe that we can or should be involved in restorative justice. Hold that thought as we look 
at the Word of God here. I'd like us to look at three truths from the Word of God involving our planet and God himself. The first one is simply this, and this isn't news to anybody. God created. God created this place. We see that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created this place we live in, and God retains ownership of this place that we live in. If we look at the creation account in Genesis, you will see a very orderly progression of creation that happened. We're told that God created light out of darkness. He created sky, dry land, vegetation, animals, and people. We can look around, we can see all that stuff that God created. Now, we may not agree exactly on the time frame for that, and that's great. That's, that's not a problem at all. If you look at Scripture, and it says that in, on one day God did each of these things, maybe God just decided in an explosive manner to just create all this stuff in a day. Or, as, as some geologists would say, you know there's all kinds of evidence that maybe it was creative series or, or seasons or epics of time, and it actually took a lot longer. Either way, by looking at our creation, it says there was a creator. By looking at the word of God from beginning to end, it says there was a creator. God created this place. But God didn't create this place and walk away. He didn't create this place and sign the title deed over to us and leave it to us. No, not at all. God retained ownership of what he created. Listen to Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. King David, the great psalmist, writes this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. David says that, that God the creator retained the ownership of, no, this earth still belongs to him. And then David said, oh, by the way, all the stuff in it belongs to him. Oh, and the people too belong to God. He has not given away anything that he has created. The earth the stuff in the earth, the people on the earth matter greatly to God, and they should matter to us as well. We should put a high value on what God has created here. Now, let's imagine for a moment um, that you invite me to come over to your house. Uh, never hung out together, and you said, hey, Pastor Kevin, come over for a coffee and dessert or whatever. Okay, fine. We set a time, and I come over to your house, and I knock on the door, and you open the door for me. And, and I walk through the door and I start observing things. And the first thing I see is that there's shoes all lined up along the wall by the front door. No, this tells me something right away. It's like, you don't want me walking around inside your house with my muddy shoes on. You, you're people who take your shoes off to keep your house clean. So I, I have that clue. And then I, I look and there's a wastebasket over here. And there's a, a recycle container over here. That gives me a clue about how you live in your house. Oh, you want trash thrown in this can. I understand that. And if something's recyclable, you want it thrown in this. I, I get that too. And there's a door that, that's, that's kind of open a little bit. And I look in and it, it's a bathroom and I see that you've got a toilet in there. And that gives me a clue. Oh, this house has indoor plumbing. <laughs> that, that, this, is, this has a use. It has a purpose. And, and so if, if by the end of the evening... When I leave, you have to call a carpenter to come in and repair all the damage I did to your house, the holes I put in your walls and the doors I tore off the hinges. And you have to call Stanley Steamer 
to come in and do all your carpets in the house to clean up all the mud that I tracked all over your house. And then you have to call 911 and report all the stuff I stole when I left your house. Then it's apparent that I didn't get those clues. I did whatever I wanted in your house. I acted like it was my own when I was a visitor in your place. Do we live like we believe we're visitors in God's place? Do we live like we believe we're guests here? Or, or do we somehow think that we were given the title to this place and we can make the rules of how we live here? Do we ever think about what this earth looked like before we humans got our hands on it? Did, do you ever get out in nature someplace where you can kind of look around and see, okay, there's nothing here that's been touched by human hands. Oh, this is what it was like before we showed up on the scene. Do you ever think that way? Are we shocked when we realize what we have done to this planet in just the last 200 years since industrialization and mechanization and technology has just exploded? Lots of good things. But what have the implications of those things been? Church, there, there is guidance of how we should live here. That There are standards. There are obvious things that we should pick up on in terms of how we live in God's place. We are indeed guests here. God made this place, and he retains ownership of it. Second point is God loves the world. God loves this earth that he created. Many of us are familiar with the verse in the Gospel of John, chapter 316, where it starts off, and God so loved the world. When we read that verse, we often think, well, what it means is God loves the people in this world, right? Because if you read the rest of the verse, it says that he's, he loved this world so much he sent his son to rescue us when we couldn't rescue ourselves. It's all true. It's all true. But that word world there that John uses in John chapter 3 actually includes the environment. It actually includes this place where we live. And what we find out is that just like any master painter or, or sculptor or architect who creates a thing of great beauty, it's appropriate for them to stand back and love what they did. That's good. I like that. Many times in the creation account, it says, and, and, and it was good. God created this, and it was good. God created this, and it was good. God loves this place that he created. He loves it for the sake of the people here because he created a beautiful environment for us to be in, but he also just loves it because it's good. What he created was good. God created this place and retains ownership of it, and God loves this place. And finally, number three, God has committed the world to our care. God has committed the world to our care. This is where things start going south, okay? <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 Verses 26 through 28, part of the creation account here. I'm going to read it from the message version, um, which I don't normally do, but, but Eugene Peterson, when he, when he wrote this, he really captures the essence of what God is saying here in Genesis chapter 1. Starting in verse 26, God spoke, Let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature, so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself, 
and every animal that moves on the face of the earth, God created human beings. He created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. God blessed them. Prosper, reproduce, fill earth, take charge. Be responsible for the fish in the seas and the birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Now, church, I cannot read that passage without walking away understanding that God has indeed delegated the care of this place to me and to us. Twice he uses the words, be responsible, take charge, rule over this earth, be re- care for it. It's undeniable. I don't think we can argue that. So I'd like you to do a little chore for me right now. I'm going to give you 60 seconds to talk to the person next to you and answer this question. How are we doing at caring for God's earth? We saw the scripture. We've received our mandate. Let's give ourselves a grade, A to F. How are we doing at caring for God's earth? You have 60 seconds. I want to hear you talking. All right, good job, good job. Uh, For those of you watching on the live stream, sorry about that. I hope you had a little conversation if there was somebody else was with you. Uh, So let me just ask you a question here. How many of you, as you talked about the grade that we get for caring for this planet, how many of you gave us a C minus or better? Let me see a hand if you gave us a C minus or better. You guys are, oh, okay, there we go. Yeah, first service we had two. Uh, Second service, we have six, okay? Six of you gave us a C minus or better, which means the rest of you gave us something lower than a C minus. This should serve as an indictment to us, church. When we do not care for planet Earth, we are shirking our responsibility, the responsibility God gave us. We're failing. We're committing an injustice against God's place. How did we get here? How did this happen? How did we allow this to happen? There's a dozen different reasons, I'm sure, but let me just talk about two attitudes that allowed us to get to this place where we give ourselves pretty much failing grades for caring for our planet. The first is an attitude that simply says, Because we can. Because we can. Why did you do that? Because I can. Why do we choose to drive a vehicle, purchase and drive a vehicle that is much less efficient than another vehicle? Why do we choose to drive a vehicle that has less fuel mileage, puts more hydrocarbons in the air, causes us to have to refine more fuel to put into the car when we could select a car that does a lot better environmentally. Well, because we can. Because we can afford it. 
I can afford the payments. I, I can pay the lease payments or the, the car payments on that car. I, I like the features. I like the color. I like whatever. I like, the, I like the manufacturer's name on the front of this car. We can do that because we can, because we're able to. But you see where that leads us? Just because we can doesn't mean we should make a decision that is more harmful to the environment. I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up here today, but I'm going to say to you who commute via carpool, those of you who commute via, via public transportation, you guys are my heroes. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, that is not fun. That is not fun what you do. I hear your stories. I walked this far to take the bus to get to the train to take the train to take the bus and walk this far and an hour and 15 minutes later, you're getting to work. Don't even ask me about my commute, please. Don't ask me about my eight-minute bicycle ride to the office. Please, don't ask me because I'm embarrassed to even talk to the rest of you. But thank you for those of you who are making a choice that is more environmental, environmentally friendly than putting one more car on the road. Why do we still avoid recycling so much? Why do we avoid it? Well, because we can. There's no law. Nobody's watching us. Nobody's scrounging through our garbage to see what we're throwing away. But it's so inconvenient to have to separate things out. It's so much easier to put everything in one container and then some nice men come twice a week and haul it away. I don't know where it goes. It doesn't matter. We can. We can avoid recycling in our country. And so we give ourselves permission to do so. Every minute on planet Earth, there are one million disposable single-use plastic bottles sold. Every minute, one million. As we've been sitting here this morning, some 60 million single-use Disposable plastic bottles have been sold. 91% of them never make it to recycling. Even though they're made out of a material that is one of the most recyclable materials that we manufacture right now. Aluminum cans and plastic disposable bottles are some of the most recyclable materials, but somehow less than 10% of them find their way to recycling. And around here, that means a lot of them are just getting thrown in the trash. Or if you travel around Bergen County, a lot of them just get thrown right out the windows of the cars because they're all lining our roads and stuff here too. Why do we still avoid recycling? Because we can. Seven and a half years ago, um, Linda and I moved to New Jersey. Metro's office was up in Fort Lee at the time in an office complex that offered no recycling whatsoever. And there was no place up there that we could take recycling. Now, granted, we were an office staff of like five at the time, and now we're like 23. Um, but when we moved down here to Inglewood, we ran into a similar situation, with the exception of the fact that right down the street from us is a public recycling place. And so we started to slowly put some stuff in motion. Okay, cardboard. Don't throw the cardboard in the, in the uh, dumpster out back anymore. Put it over here. And, and then we put bins for plastic and aluminum. And then we put bins for paper. And I can tell you this right now. Today, church, 80 to 85 percent of everything that leaves our office goes down and goes into the recycling. 15 to 20 percent goes into 
the garbage out there. And I am so proud of our staff, and I'm so proud of you guys when you come and use the office for your meetings and stuff and actually take the time to divide it out and put it in the right recycling places. Because to me, it says we can change. We don't have to stay stuck where we are. And it's not that hard. It's a little more effort, but it's doing the right thing. Why do we consume so much stuff in our culture today? If you look at the whole population of the world, we are 5% in the United States. 5% of the entire population of the world. Do you know how much energy we consume in the United States? 25% of all the energy that's produced on this globe is consumed by us in this country right here. How does that work? Well, because we can. We can afford it. We want the gas for our cars. We want the products. We want everything that takes up energy in our country. And so we are one of the highest consumers in the world, but we only have 5% of the population of the world. Church, the because we can defense indicates how much we think of ourselves and how little we think of people who may be impacted by our choices here in this country. The because we can defense is totally contrary to what God revealed to us in the Genesis 1 passage when he said, be responsible, be responsible, be responsible. The second attitude that got us here is an attitude that says, out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. Another hypothetical situation here. There's no more trash pickup in our neighborhoods. All the trash we produce in our house goes in a pile right outside our front door. It's right there. If we have a yard, it's in our lawn. If we if we in an apartment, it's right on the curb. And whenever we walk out the door, we got to walk around this pile of trash that's growing all the time. Would we look at recycling a little differently? Would we think a little bit more about how much trash we are producing? I think we probably would because it would be in our view. But because it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Where does our trash go? I don't know. Doesn't matter. It's not here. I don't have to contend with it. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. What if you and your children or your grandchildren were breathing the toxic air that countries like China and India and other developing countries are breathing every day? You guys see the pictures. You guys travel. We're a church that travels. There's people here who have been to Beijing. You've been to Shanghai. You've been to India. You know what I'm talking about. What if it was our kids, our parents, and us that were breathing that air? Would we look at this whole problem of what we're pumping into the atmosphere a little differently than we do now? But our air is beautiful here. I mean, if we ever have a day here when they say, oh, there's a slight warning. I mean, you look outside, it's like, oh, my goodness, the rest of the world will laugh at us because of what they breathe on a regular basis. For us, it's out of sight. And so... It's out of mind. One of the things that we have done in our country over the last 20 years or so is we've found very creative ways to export our pollution overseas. We still want the same amount of stuff, and we want it fairly cheap so we can afford it. But we don't want all the pollution and stuff that it comes with it that harms the environment. So what we've done is we've, we, we've shut down our steel mills here. We've shut down a lot of our large manufacturing stuff and, and, and pushed them all overseas where labor is cheaper, they can produce all the same stuff, and so 
they do the work. They suffer the pollution that comes from all the energy and everything that they need to do that, and we get our products at a price that we can afford. One of the ramifications, 11,500 people die every day from polluted air worldwide. Okay? We've pushed that away from us so we don't have to deal with it because we don't have to see it. How is that loving our neighbor to continue to demand all we want and think we need here and push the pollution onto somebody else? When I was uh, nine or ten years old, uh, I grew up just, just outside of San Francisco, uh, my family took a road trip uh, on the West Coast. Now, this was in the 60s. Yes, I'm a child of the 60s. I admit it. Summer of love and flower power and all this kind of stuff. Hate Ashbury, San Francisco. Um, but I was young enough not to be overly impacted by that stuff. But as we traveled up and down the, the West Coast, what we found was there were a lot of young people that were, they were hitchhiking and, you know, backpacking and just going from city to city uh, along the West Coast during, during that era. We got up to Vancouver and there was literally a tent city right in downtown Vancouver. It must have been like a big open field or park or something. And a lot of these backpackers and stuff had just moved in there, put their tents up as like, you know, tents on top of tents and stuff, just crowded with people. And there was a wall outside or a fence or some kind of barrier there. And somebody had painted graffiti on the wall. And, and, and here's what it said on the wall. Th this is sanitized for church, okay? This is what it said on the wall. If you keep pooping in your nest, you will soon be nesting in your poop. Okay, I read that, and I thought, I don't want to go in there. <laughs> I'm not that curious. I don't want to go in there. But, but the idea, church, here is that we don't believe that because we send our stuff other places so we don't have to nest in it. But it's still planet Earth. It's still here on planet Earth. Wherever they take our garbage, it's still here. Whatever gets pumped into the air is killing people. Do you know about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? It's definitely out of sight because none, none of us live in the middle of the ocean. But out there, because of currents, all of this floating plastic that has been thrown into the ocean has all gathered in one place, and the currents have kept it there. Some people estimate it's at least the size of the state of Texas and probably larger. And, and it would take, you know, hundreds of years to ever get rid of it if we could even figure out a way to do it. Now, there's some scientists right now that have decided that there is a good possibility of creating an, a, a, a microbe that eats the plastic and digests it. It breaks it down into something that's a little more environmentally friendly, and they're figuring out ways that maybe they could introduce that so these, these microbes could eat the plastic. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, what's wrong with this picture? If those guys are that smart, they should be curing cancer not figuring out how they can make bugs that eat plastic. But no, we've thrown so much stuff into our oceans, but it's out of sight. So it's out of mind for us. The problems are clear. Environmental injustice is a real thing. It exists. It's also clear that we have a biblical mandate in Genesis 1 to be responsible for this planet, and that does not line up with the grade we gave ourselves or the present reality in our world today. So where do we go from here? How do we do justice in this situation? Where can we bring justice 
to this conversation? Well, this is a good news. Thank you for asking that question. Because there are some very practical and doable responses that we can make to this. And this is where I challenge you to not change your thinking. I hope maybe you've changed your thinking a little bit already. This is where I'm challenging you to change your practice, to change your actions. And, and believe me, this is not going to turn your life on its head. This is going to be small first steps. But if you'll take the small steps, then what will happen is it will encourage you to take the next step and hopefully encourage you to talk to other people and motivate them to take some steps. And when we do that with our 500-plus adults here at Metro, we can make a difference. We can bring justice. Here's the first practical response. Motor oil. Motor oil. What? What's he talking about? I don't know if you've heard of the 3,000-mile myth, but it's alive and well. And it says that if you really want to take care of your car, you will change the oil every 3,000 miles. Where does this come from? 40-plus years ago when I bought my first car, if you didn't change your oil every 3,000 miles, you would destroy your engine. Engines were made that way, and oil was made that way, that it had to be changed every 3,000 miles. But what's happened is certain people, for their own profit, have propagated the myth that we still need to change our oil every 3,000 miles. How do I know that? Every time I take my car in to have the oil change, the nice man puts a little sticker in my windshield, and it says, your oil change is due, and he adds 3,000 miles to my odometer reading. And it's, go on the internet, it's a real thing, it's out there. So here's the question, church. Who are you going to believe about when you should change the oil in your car? Are you going to believe the mechanic who's making money off of having you come in every 3,000 miles? Are you going to believe the oil company that makes the oil and makes their profits by selling more oil? Or are you going to believe the people who made your car? Who has a greater vested interest in your car engine running well for a very long time? Well, it's the manufacturer. The, the Honda people who made my car tell me that I have to change my oil every 7,500 miles. If they thought my car would do better changing it at 3,000, they'd tell me that. Because they want my car to last for years and years, and they want me to say Honda in front of the whole church. <laughs> they have the greatest vested interest. But we don't pay attention to what the manufacturer says because it's our nice, jiffy lube, speedy oil change guy who's every time telling us, see you in 3,000 miles, see you in 3,000 miles. Let me tell you what the implications are of this. You and I have the same car. We've, we bought it at the same time. We've driven it the same number of miles. You bought into the 3,000-mile myth. I went with what the manufacturer said, okay? So today, based on the mileage in my car, you've changed oil in your car 68 times. I've changed it in my car 27 times. That's 41 times more you've gone in to visit your Speedy Lube guy. Maybe you like him. I don't know. Maybe you just love hanging out there while they're changing your oil. 41 more times you've been in there. I don't know what you pay every time you go in, but I rarely get in and out for under 50 bucks. Now, if you've got that kind of money that you don't need to spend on something else, please don't do it on extra oil changes that your car doesn't need. Give it to the building fund at Metro. <laughs> if you've got that kind of money. Now, here's the other implication here. This is my little visual, okay? This is a bucket. 
five-gallon bucket, okay? In the life of your car, you have filled this bucket 15 times with dirty old motor oil from all the times you've changed your car, changed your car's oil. I've only filled it six times as I've followed what the manufacturer said. So not only am I spending less money, but I'm creating less waste oil that has to be handled and recycled, and that all takes energy to do that. And so it really is a big deal. And I estimate that there are a minimum of 500 cars represented at Metro Community Church. What if we all started having our oil changed according to the manufacturer? This would be what responsibility looks like in terms of caring for our planet. I'm not asking you to quit driving your car or even drive it less. I'm just asking you not to use up more resources, finite resources, than you have to to drive your car, okay? We can all do that. I wish, I wish we would. I really do. The second one here uh, is like home appliances, okay? Home appliances, the first home appliance that uses the most electricity and power is our heating and air conditioning. And we need that, right? It's cold here in the winter. It's hot here in the summer. We need that. We can, we can regulate our thermostat and try to be efficient that way, but we've got to have that. The, the second highest, one of the second highest energy suckers in your house is your clothes dryer. Now, I said this in sermon practice the other day, uh, and one of our pastors gasped when I said that. And, and, and this pastor said, don't make me give up my dryer. I'm not going to make you give up your dryer. Believe me, I'm not going to make you. But what I want you to do is I want you to use your dryer less. You don't have to use your dryer as much as you do. This little device right here, little device here. Several of you have these in your homes already. Your pastors, your pastors told me several of them, oh, I have one of those. I use that. Linda and I have two of those in our house. Keep it in the corner of a room, and it'll easily handle one load of wash. Literally, we use our dryer about once a month. And that is a huge savings to us, but we're not doing it for the money. We're doing it for the environment. We're doing it to be responsible. And then we've kind of taken the next step to, I think I've got a slide here. Um, we actually got one of these retractable clotheslines. Is there a picture of that? Yeah, it's a retractable clothesline. It just goes into a little reel like this. And on the days we do sheets and towels that are too big for the rack, we just pull that thing out. The sheets are drier in like, in like two hours. And it's like we didn't even have to put that stuff in the dryer. This is a way that we can make a difference. This is a small step that we can take. Find a way to use things like clothes dryers less. We're using less energy we're spending less money. Oh, by the way, your clothes last longer if you don't dry them in the dryer. The dryer actually wears your clothes out. So there's another benefit as well. Of course, if you don't like your clothes and you want to get new clothes more often, then you should probably dry them in the dryer. Okay, the third one, the third and final one is reduce and recycle. Reduce and recycle. You've, all, you've heard it all before. But here again is our lowly single-use disposable plastic water bottle. We're addicted to these things. They're trendy in our society. It's like, oh, that's the way to drink water. Did you realize that New York City has some of the best drinking water in the tap in the entire country? People don't think that. Oh, big city and all this stuff. No, no, no. New York City has got water that's so good. There's restaurants in Jersey that go to New York City to get the water to make their bagels and their pizza dough and stuff like that. But yet we are, 
we're insisting on buying more and more of these plastic water bottles, which in 99% in of the cases is just tap water in here that's just been filtered. Could we do it with a reusable bottle? Could, could we use these things less? When we do use them, could we make really sure that we recycle them and they're not just going in the trash and becoming one more thing floating in the great Pacific garbage patch? We have to do better with recycling people, and we can. We can. We can all improve. I'm challenging myself, even as I say those words. The beauty of environmental justice is that we don't have to think very hard to find something we can do to make a difference right now. Some of you guys are into this more than I am. God bless you. There's probably even another thing you can do to raise the bar a little bit. Do it or encourage somebody else to do their part as well. Many people making small steps will have a very significant impact on our environment. And if we're willing to talk to other people, then what we're doing will become infectious to them. And we can indeed say, God, we are doing our best to be responsible for this place you've allowed us to live. I close with Luke chapter 10, verse 27, words of Jesus. When somebody asked him a question about justice, and Jesus talks about the greatest commandment and the second commandment. Luke 10, 27, Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourselves. What better way to demonstrate our love for God than for loving this place that he has put us in and being obedient to his mandate to be responsible? That is a concrete way that we can demonstrate our love for God. And loving our neighbors, that's not just the neighbors we can see. There's neighbors on the other side of the globe we'll probably never meet, but they're still our neighbors and they are being impacted by our decisions. They're suffering because of our choices. And our neighbors are also the future generations. My grandkids are my neighbors. I want to leave a better place for them than how this world looks right now. Church, this is doable stuff. There's nobody in this room that can't take the next step in environmental justice, moving towards being those obedient followers of God who take seriously when he says, be responsible for this place. I'm delegating that to you. Let's pray. God, would you forgive us for turning a blind eye to this good earth that you have allowed us to live in and that you have given us responsibility for? God, would you please point out to each one of us in this room what is that next step that we can take to start moving in a healthier direction for the sake of our planet for the sake of the generations that will follow us for the sake of people that we may never meet God I don't know what everybody needs today if it's a little bit of conviction a little bit of encouragement a little bit of motivation whatever it is God give it to us because we don't want to be guilty of injustice on this earth 
Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for revealing your heart to us. Now give us the courage to follow. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, you have your app or you have these next steps here. If you just pull those out here as we, as we close. Uh, the, f- the first one, as always, says, Today I'm receiving God's gift of salvation. God makes a provision for every person on this planet to come into a relationship with him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And if that's not a decision that you have ever made today, I, I would encourage you to strongly consider let the, letting this be the day to make that decision. You can check that box off, uh, but don't do that without talking to one of us. Stop at the next table on your left on the way out. There's people there that would love to talk with you and help you get started on that journey uh, of being in a relationship with God. Uh, this w- second one, this week I'll meditate on Genesis 126 to 28 in the message version. Uh, those are the verses that we read together that, that bring out so clearly our responsibility to this planet. It would be great for you to read that more than once and just let God speak to you through his word. Uh, I will purchase or borrow and read Serve God, Save the Planet or Everyday Justice. Here's, here's the two books right here. These are entry-level books. Um, they, they're not... Um, to make you feel guilty, but they're to give you practical ways uh, to do a better job of what we've talked about today. I'm going to leave these up on the front here. Uh, please don't steal them, but you may uh, copy down every, anything you want. If, you, if you'd like to borrow them, you can come talk to me and we'll see. Um, but I've lost a lot of those books already. And that's, okay, I just, want, I just want to make sure you guys read them. And then finally, I will figure out when my oil should be changed and I will do it. I will figure it out. Now, if you can't figure it out, if you don't know how to read that manual in the glove box of your car, go out and get it. After the service, bring it in. I will show you how often your oil should be changed. Send me an email. I've got a website I can go to and figure it out for any car that's ever been made. But please find out and then take that step of saying, I'm in the driver's seat here, not my oil change guy. Okay? So those next steps, you can fill out and drop that in the offering plate. And if you are... um, uh, first-time visitor, when the offering comes around, just let this be your offering today. No, no obligation to give. Um, worship. We worship God with our songs. We worship God with our fellowship. We worship God with our actions. We worship God with how we treat this planet. And we worship God when we come to the table uh, to celebrate communion. Pastor Ansi, or I'm sorry, Pastor Doug is going to come and lead us at this time as we uh, come to the Lord's table.